Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Colleen. Hi, I'm Colleen, I'm a compulsive reader and uh, your speaker this evening. Hi, Colleen. Um, so excited to be here, and I just want to uh, say thank you to Martha for asking me to speak and be of service. It's really an honor. Seriously, I know that sounds funny. Well, it sounds funny to me. Um, to be here to share with you my experience, strength, and hope, um, pretty much because it's all I've got. So, um, to qualify, I've been absent uh, since August 4th of 2002. Um, my top weight that I know was 311 pounds. So I've been maintaining about 160-pound weight loss uh, as a result of working the steps. Um, I have uh, pictures that I'm passing around, and um, I carry with me my size 24 jeans. <laughs> um, sponsor I for many years used to say that if you're ever too tired to wait, work your program, they're waiting for you. So I, I keep them um, as a reminder of where I come from um, and where I don't want to return. Um, when I came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous in the summer of 2002, I really had no idea what I was doing or why I was here. Um, I didn't come because I wanted to stop eating compulsively. Um, I didn't come because I wanted a bunch of people who, like, held hands <laughs> and said cute little sayings and who read the same things over and over and over again. I was like, I think we know it now, don't we? <laughs> Um, I came in um, because I was so uncomfortable in my body and I didn't have any other place to go. Um, I had been to an OA meeting when I was in college uh, years before once, and I walked in, and there were two women there, and um, one of them was a woman actually I knew who was friends with my parents. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um <laughs> And then this other gal who just talked about food the whole time. And I was like, really? You know, like, I think about food. I don't need to sit and talk about it, you know. And they probably read the 12 steps, but I don't remember that part. And um, they probably had recovery, but I just wasn't ready yet. You know, at that point in my life, I, I let's see, I was in college, so I probably uh, had another 100 pounds or so to go. Um, and... Uh, I wasn't quite uncomfortable enough, just enough yet. Um, I've learned that as a compulsive overeater, as an addict, um, it really has to be painful in order for me to want to do something about it. Um, the good news is, is that in recovery, um, that level of discomfort comes much quicker. Um, and the willingness to fight uh, anyone or anything is is not there the way it used to be. Um, I pretty much approached life like you were all out to get me, and I had to prove my way through and show you that I wasn't who you thought I was. And the funny thing is, is you weren't thinking about me at all. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about me, so what else would you be thinking about? And um, 
And what I realized is that when I came into the rooms and I began to walk this path of the 12 steps, I saw that, well, I found out that you weren't thinking about me um, and that I didn't have to prove anything. The fact that I was living and breathing was proof enough that I was supposed to be exactly where I was. Um, and that was never a message that came through to me. Um, in, in my journey and in becoming a compulsive overeater, I mean, there's millions of reasons why I ate. I ate because I was uncomfortable. I ate because I was scared. I ate because it numbed me out. I ate because it kept me quiet. I ate because um, I could check out really easily. Um, I could create a, a nice 160-pound barrier between you and me because I didn't know that the word no was a complete sentence or that it was okay to just say that, period. Um, you know, I didn't have some of the skills that I think some people just sort of innately born with. I'm always fascinated by people who are just, like, happy. I'm like, where are, where did you come from? You know, like, I always had sort of this sort of off-kilter perspective, like there was a cloud hanging over me a lot of the time. And, um, and it's not like I grew up in terrible, terrible circumstances. I mean, my parents are very loving people, and, and they did the best they could, you know. And they did a really good job. There's some other things they also did. But, I mean, overall, like, I wasn't fending for myself. You know, I had a roof over my head. There was always food on the table. <laughs> good thing, right? Um, and... You know, and they love me, and they still love me. And um, despite my best efforts um, to destroy myself and destroy my life, I was not successful, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, despite my best efforts to prove that I was the piece of crap that I thought I was, it, it didn't work. Um, there were still people who wanted to be around me. There were still people who wanted to tell me that they loved me. There were still people who were happy to see me. Um, and so this story that I had going in my head about who I was and why I was here, there were parts of reality that didn't compute with that. There were other parts of reality that it did. It completely aligned with that. Um, and I, what I've learned is that what I focus on expands. And when I'm in the disease of compulsive overeating and when I'm eating my alcoholic foods, I can't distinguish the true from the false. You know, it tells me that in the doctor's opinion. I simply can't. I'm not capable. And that puts me at a disadvantage because then whatever I glom onto gloms onto me. And as an addict, my pension is for it to be dark and gloomy and it's never going to get any better and by the way there is no other moment than this one when it's really really bad and this by the way is just going to hit repeat over and over and over again you know there's no new breath there's no new moment there's no new pause um, and so as I went through my life um, you know things got a little chaotic at a young age and I needed something quick and sugar worked really well really well. I still remember my experience going to the Carvel down the street. We lived in Long Island. And they rolled the, the ice cream in the jimmies, which are chocolate sprinkles. And um, 
Oh, yeah, I still remember that. Like, woo! It was like, you know, I, like, all was good after that, you know? But the funny thing about food is that it doesn't really last very long. Now, I, I never experimented with anything else. I mean, I did some playing around with alcohol, but I didn't like it because it made me feel out of control. Compulsive reading is an interesting addiction for me because it was like it allowed me to maintain an illusion of control. Because it wasn't like I stuffed myself with pizza and cookie dough and then I was like breaking down chairs and like driving into people and you know so I could maintain the the appearance that like everything's fine you know and that was sort of the, the line in my life like everything's fine Colleen's just fat um and you know what I didn't get is that there was a disconnect um between who I really was and who I thought I was or who I was supposed to be and um so I basically just ate and ate, and then it became an issue um, of, well, my body's the problem. So that's what I mean when I say, and I came in, I didn't have any desire to stop eating compulsively because I didn't think that was a problem. Like, I just, the way I ate was the way I ate because don't you know that's what I need to do? Like, this is my, my lifeline. This is how I get through, you know? Um, and don't you know I deserve... Blah, 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 you know, because I, I'm alive, you know, like, because I have to deal with other people, because um, I'm upset, you know, I deserve all kinds of things, um, and so I had a, a very brief moments of dieting, most of it was, like, laying at night after I had binged on something, and, like, just sort of praying to God, like, make me wake up skinny, and then I didn't, so then what the good is God for? in that regard, um, and, you know, I wasn't actually going to take any action and do anything about that, um, and then, you know, if I did go on any kind of a diet, it'd last maybe till about noon, um, so, you know, I did have a very short period when I was in high school, I lost about 40 pounds, um, I went on some massively restrictive diet, and all I know is that I hit a plateau, and I didn't understand what that was. So all I could figure out was that I was no longer eating the stuff I like to be eating, and I stopped losing weight. And I thought, well, what the heck is the point of this? You know, and so I was like, that went out the window. Um, not to mention that there, you know, I remember getting a couple of different glances from different men, and then that would be enough to just be like, okay, we need to put the protection back on. None of this is conscious, of course, but, you know, when I look back on it, I see that as a pattern for me. And... So, you know, you go up and up and up, and then what happens is, is, like, you know, the amount of food that worked before doesn't quite do it anymore, so now I've got to keep adding to that. And I still remember, it was so funny, I was a, a school teacher for many years. I, I am I'm not any longer, but um, I remember early on in abstinence, like, because I wasn't eating in between meals, that, like, the whole eating after school when I was grading papers wasn't happening. <laughs> I remember being like, something feels weird. Probably because I didn't, wasn't doing this while I was doing, you know, writing. Like, I wasn't stuffing something in my face at the same time. And then I cut down on a lot of time because I didn't have to make my run to the AMPM to get all my stuff so that I could, you know, because I was going to work on the weekends because I'm such a dedicated teacher. Um, and, you know, none of that was happening. And it, it was like, okay, this just, they got graded much quicker. Um I was much more useful and much more productive in my life because I wasn't spending a lot of time driving from place to place to place to place. 
and um, you know it's pretty amazing like what you can do with with life when you're not busy trying to get your next fix um, so by the time I came in here at over 300 pounds like I said I was really uncomfortable in my body and the, the reality of it was I couldn't ignore it anymore I'd probably been uncomfortable for a long time, not to mention a whole lifetime of, like, blaming my body and feeling betrayed by my body and all this story. Like, my body doesn't actually do anything. I just cased it all on that. And um, so I came in because I, there was nowhere else for me to go. It was a recommendation of a, a therapist that I was seeing at the time. She thought I might like the camaraderie. And y'all were so nice. Like, you're like, keep coming back, you know. And you're like, welcome. And I was like, y'all are nuts. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, much too happy for your own good. And, um, and I thought, you know, and, and it's so cliche, but, like, what they say, like, there was something in your eyes. There was something in the way that you were present to each other in these meetings. The fact that nobody interrupted anybody. I was like, wow. Like, they get to share. You know, I mean, it's on a timer and all this stuff, but, like, that's amazing to me, you know. And... I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it, and that was good, see, because the minute I could wrap my head around it and I could figure it out, I go into automatic pilot, and that was my goal as an addict, was like to figure it out, which is why it was so upsetting to me in life when I couldn't figure it out, because then I would have to be present for it, and to be present for something means that I have to be in the moment, it means that I am feeling something, it means that I am paying attention, and I'm awake, and I'm alive, and that scared the crap out of me, because then what do I do, you know, and so as I, I came in, and, you know, I'm very good at following rules, so goody two-shoes was like my badge of honor, so you said get a sponsor, so I found a sponsor, and she said, okay, we're going to work the steps, I said, okay, she said, you're going to establish an abstinence, I said, okay, what's yours, she told me hers, I said, sounds good, you know, and I went through that beginning thing of like, you know, for, so my abstinence when it started was um, three meals a day, nothing in between, um, and uh, uh, two uh, optional uh, snacks, a piece of fruit. And so that meant, like, between those meals, I wasn't eating anything. Now, as a teacher, like, between breakfast and lunch, not a problem, I'm busy. Um, between lunch and dinner was a little bit harder. Um, and then dinner was, like, at 10 o'clock at night because I needed it to last until I fell asleep, you know, like. And um, so, you know, that uncomfortableness of that in-between. And, and so then I was like, well, what do I do now? And she's like, well, that's when we go to meetings, we read the literature. She was so nice. Um, and, yeah, she was so nice that she said, you know, call me whenever you need to. So I never called her because I didn't want to bother her. That doesn't work very well. So four months into it, I was um, suffering, uh, no mistake there, because I wasn't getting my fix all day long. And um, I didn't, hadn't picked up any of the tools, really. So um, I promptly ended up switching to another sponsor who provided a little bit more structure for me, which was really helpful. Um, you know, she had me call at a certain time every day, and, and that's what I needed. Like, I needed somebody to be like, this is what you're going to do. Um, because I couldn't figure it out on my own. You know, I didn't, I didn't really understand. I still didn't, you know, I, <laughs> after about the fourth meeting, I was like, y'all read this every time. Like, really, <laughs> you know. 
And I think it took me a couple months before I was like, yeah, we read it all the time. Because I need to rewire the thinking that's going on in my head. Because all I'm doing is think of the same thing over and over and over again. So maybe if I'm hearing something different over and over and over again, it will begin to replace it. And it did, slowly with time. Um, because instead, instead of thinking like, uh-oh, you know, I think, oh, God. was a slight improvement, you know. Mm-hmm. Or like... You know, I think they remember reading something about a tool, like a phone. And it was so funny to me because I, I didn't call many people early on in my program because I was afraid, like, I'd be bothering you. <laughs> you know, people don't answer their phones, so it's really, obviously, I'm not bothering anybody. And, um, <laughs> you know, like... That wasn't an issue when I finally did start to pick up the phone. And then um, what I found was that it connected me with another human being, which also scared the crap out of me, because then it's like, what do you say? And then there's that awkward thing where you're, like, ending the conversation, and then who said goodbye? Like, I, I just didn't, like, know how to, Like, I had a career. I had a degree. You know, I had friendships. But I, like, didn't know how to get through, like, beginning to end of a day without eating. So... If I wasn't eating and I wasn't jogging out, like, what do I do? You know, so I get myself to lots of meetings, and um, I create this connection with the sponsor, and um, I share with her these things in my four-step that I've never told anybody. And she just looks at me, and she smiles. And I'm like, there it is again. There's that thing of, like, we're so glad you're here. And I was like, you know, and then she cried with me, you know, and she said, here, you know, this is what I, I've noticed as a pattern in your life. And, you know, the funny thing when I did my very first four-step was I started laughing after a while because I was like, oh, my God, I've done the same thing over and over and over again. The people were different. The situation was different. But I was the same. You know, who I was being is the same. And... um so then we, we began to look at these, these defects or defenses of character. And, you know, we did the sixth and the seventh step, which I didn't really understand at the time. You know, that's a continual process for me. And, um, and then we took a look at the people that I needed to make amends to. And there weren't too many of those people because I had, I had done a lot of more inner imploding than outer exploding. Like I said, I like to maintain the illusion of control. So that meant that I never actually got angry with you. I would just, you know, like, clench my jaw, stuff a pizza in, and then, like, you know, pretend it would go away. Um, or I would turn it on myself and be like, well, if you hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened, you know. So it was all about that, like, self-flagellation. So a lot of my amends were more living amends of, like, I no longer get to talk to myself this way. You know, I no longer get to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, ugh. You know, I would have to go, all right. You know, and I would have to pay attention to the words that I would use towards myself. I could no longer afford, I no longer had the luxury of affording to um, speak poorly of myself to myself. Um, And that's what, you know, I found in the literature. That's what I found in working the steps was that I had to pay close attention to how I was thinking. Because if I allow my stinking thinking to keep going, that negative thinking that I get stuck in as an addict, that I sometimes thrive off as an addict, then I don't know when all of a sudden um, it's going to turn into a binge. 
you know, and so I have to learn to breathe. That was something I didn't actually do much of, apparently. Um, you know, that was something I learned how to do in the 11th step, where it says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. So my sponsor that I had said, you have to pray and meditate every day. I had no idea what she was talking I knew how to pray. Like, I came in here with a relationship with a higher power, one that I conveniently kept out of my food. Um, because as far as I was concerned, God was busy with world poverty and would be so for a while, so why would God care about what I was eating? Um, and so what I began to see was that I had to bring God into every little decision, whether it was to buy a pair of shoes or to... Um, put this on my food plan or to call my sponsor or to talk to my mother or whatever it was, like every little thing. And because, I, again, I, I just didn't know what to do. And, um, and that meant pausing a lot. So, you know, in the big book when it talks about pausing when agitated or doubtful, I needed to do a lot of that. It was so interesting. I was, I was very anxious today, and I don't really know why. Sometimes there's a reason, sometimes there isn't. And it reminded me of, I remember that was one of the first things I noticed when I put the food down, is that there was this tremendous amount of anxiety. I was never somebody who suffered from anxiety because I was eating all the time. So I didn't know what that really felt like. And I remember that, like, I would be anxious, like, I'd be at my Saturday morning meeting, and I'd be, like, freaking out about, like, what happens at the end of the meeting when all these different people want to talk to you? <laughs> Again, no one is thinking about me. And so what I realized is I don't have to do anything. Like, you talk to the person next to you. Like, it's not a big deal. But I could make everything a big deal, because don't you know the slightest little decision I make is going to be catastrophic, because I'm just that powerful. I mean, really, like, I had to get over myself big time. And um, so that thing of doing that prayer and meditation, so she said, well, then get a timer and set it for two minutes. And I was like, okay. And I was like, and then what? She said, sit there. I was like, okay. So I did. Um, And two minutes became five minutes and ten minutes and twelve minutes, and now it's about 20 to 25 minutes every morning. Um, and sometimes it's a great experience. Um, sometimes I fall asleep. Sometimes um, my head won't stop going. Sometimes the best I can muster up is to, you know, breathe in God, breathe out love. Um, or just say, be here, you know. Um, but I show up every day because I, I figure that showing up is what I didn't know how to do. So that's the best way that I can live my life and live my program is to show up. And, and you guys talk about that. You taught me that in these rooms. We suit up and we show up. doesn't mean we know what the result is. doesn't mean we know what's going to happen. In fact, we usually don't. And actually what I've learned to do is embrace the unknown. Because I've learned that when I think I know how something's going to turn out, I don't, I'm not present for it. Well, if I'm not present for it, then what, the point is, what is the point of being here? Because I am a human being, not a human doing. You know, but I always measure my life by what I'm doing. You know, is it good enough? Did what I did, was that good enough? And the reality is, is that who I am is enough. Because God didn't, like, install me with, like, missing pieces. Now, I may look at the world or look at my view of things and see what's missing. But God doesn't do that. Because God is a power greater than me. So God sees something else. And, and that's part of what that process is for me. Um, you know, I was thinking about how 
you know, one of the, the magical experiences that I've continued to experience in recovery is um, that when I, I began to turn every little thing over to this power greater than me, that power began to show up in ways that I never imagined it would. Um, and, you know, like I see God in the bumper stickers in the cars that cut me off that say things like, peace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or um, or the way that the, the light comes through um, the clouds, you know, or when I can hear the, the wind blow the trees, you know, or even just like, you know, when I pull up to a parking meter and it's already full. Like, these are, are you know, in, in the traditional religious sense, those are not God things, those are just circumstances, you know, and I, what is the expression, um, coincidences are when God chooses to remain anonymous or something like that. And so what I began to see is that I could choose. I could choose to believe that that was a power greater than me that was working in my life, or I could choose not. But you know what? When I choose that it is, that grows. That expands. And so I begin to see things differently because the eyes through which I'm looking are not just my own physical eyes. The eyes through which I'm looking are the ones that I yearn to connect with something greater than me that happens first thing in the morning and it's not like it's an you know like an all day sort of bliss thing although I've had moments like that it's more that like then I remember so when I remember to stop and breathe you know I had to do that today because like I said I was feeling anxious and I was getting ready to eat lunch and I know better than to go into eating feeling kind of off because then at that meal I don't care how big it is and I eat big salads but that it's not going to be enough you know, like, it's just not going to be enough. And I'm going to be left with the feeling when I'm done. So um, I had to stop and and go into um, my living area where I have my little meditation chair. And I just sat down for a minute. And I put my hand on my heart. And I just took a couple deep breaths. And I said, God, listen, I don't know what this is. But if you want me to keep experiencing it, let me keep experiencing it. If you don't want me to, then don't let me. Remove from me my will. Place in me your will. Give me the power and the courage to carry it out. Now, did it magically, like, excise itself for me? No. But I felt a little bit better. And see, I used to depend upon cookie dough to do that. Except when the cookie dough had run through my system, I then felt like complete crap and needed more of that and more of that and more of that. And then eventually there was never enough until I passed out, you know. Um, one of the things... Wow. Okay. <laughs> um... The twelfth step. It was so funny. Um, I um, I was talking to a sponsee the other day, and she's getting ready to start sponsoring. And she said, "You know, they say that like sponsoring, like is I don't know how she put it. Like it's it's a great experience. What's your experience been?" <laughs> <laughs> and I paused for a minute because I know better than to just engage. And I said. Yes, there are parts of sponsoring that are awesome. When I'm working with another human being and I see the light come on in their eyes, or I hear them talk about how God did for them what they could not do for themselves, because they choose to walk this path, when they're crying their eyes out and they're freaked out, but they calm, 
Like, that's when you're like, oh, this is cool, you know? And, and I'm reminded that my only job is to share my experience, strength, and hope. I say, this is what I did. Try it out. See if it works for you. I'm not an authority on this. I have no, no beeline to God at all. But this is what worked for me. And sponsoring can be hard. And it's messy. And it's ugly sometimes. And it's uncomfortable. And I grow. And I learn how to love. And I learn how to be. And I learn how to forgive. And I learn how to show up no matter what. And um, so is it a great experience? You better believe it. And what I found is that sometimes I used to think that, like, I would learn how to love by having loving experiences. Um, But I learned how to love by having the opposite experiences. Um, I learned how to grow um, when there's something to grow from. I learned how to be when all I want is to not be. You know, there's sort of this, I guess, sort of duality or whatever of things that exist. And so I've learned that the gifts in life are about the ones that show up when I'm not expecting them. You know, it talks about that, that that we have to let go of our expectations. Um, We have to, you know, what's the expression? Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And I remember hearing that a lot, and I would think about it in terms of relationships, and I'd be like, well, I'm not in a relationship, so it's not an issue for me. But a lot of times it's in my own head, Colleen, do you want to be right about this or do you want to be happy? You know? Um, And so what I found in working these steps, thank you, um, is that it's so much more, so much more than just not eating myself to death, although that's a huge thing. Not, you know, getting myself drunk off of food. Um, it's about connecting with other people, the very thing I was afraid to do. It's about um, learning how to just be, you know, and to breathe. And somehow, by, by doing these steps, like, this whole world opens up. The, the eyes through which I see are completely different than the ones that I saw through when I came in here over 12 and a half years ago. Um, yes, the body I'm in is also completely different, and I enjoy that as well. And I don't hate it the way that I used to. And um, I'm much more forgiving and much more understanding, and um, I'm not so scared anymore. You know, I have moments of fear, but I don't have to buy into that that's my whole reality anymore. In fact, I don't have to buy into anything. Um, I don't need to purchase my life. It has been given to me. And it's been given to me so that it can be a gift to other people. And when I remember that, that I'm just one among many, and um, it's not about me getting mine, or me protecting mine, or, you know, securing something, then life just works a little bit easier, and I can breathe, and I can... I can be here. I don't have to be somewhere else. I don't have to get out of right here right now. So uh, I'm going to stop. And I guess um, we open it up to questions or whatever. But thank you for listening.
Okay, so if I understand you correctly, what you're asking me is, did my abstinence change, and, and did I waver with it? Yeah. Um, and then did the weight, what, at what rate did the weight come up? So um, my abstinence is similar. What has since happened is I've added my alcoholic foods, which I realized was an important component. Those need to go on my abstinence, my no matter what thing. Um, in terms of wavering, um, it was my understanding that abstinence was the most important thing without exception. So um, when I start, I take that very seriously. So I could be very doggedly determined, and I guess that sort of came in. Um, and so in terms of, like, have I s swayed from that at all in the 12 and a half years? No. Because um, it's a life or death kind of thing. I started adding alcohol foods about six months in. The first one to go on there was, uh, recre you know, blatant recreational sugar, and then eventually, like, as certain foods come up or whatever, they go on there. After I talked to my sponsor, after, you know, it's not like something is, goes weird and I just add it on there. It's not a self thing. Like, someone else is accountable for my food. Um, with me like my food gets reported in advance somebody else always knows what's going on because I'm an addict with food um, in terms of the weight um, when I I stopped eating blatant sugar actually I lost about 25 pounds but then there's lots of other stuff you can I could eat um, so it stayed for a couple months and then when I got really serious when I realized that I was carrying all this weight and I thought what am I doing you know and I, I made the decision because it talks about that this is um, if you have decided that you want what we have. So I made a decision um, that I wanted what you had. And um, so that meant that I need to be working towards a healthy body weight. So then I changed my food plan a lot. Um, and so uh, probably over the next 16 to 18 months after that is when I lost the rest of the weight. The hardest thing I've done to be of service. Well, everything I did in the beginning was hard. <laughs> um, Probably, um, I think one of the hardest things was uh, at the intergroup uh, in the Valley, I was the, the person in charge of, like, special events or whatever. And being my, with my perfectionistic inclinations, like, everything was going to have to go just so, and they don't. Um, so learning how to just let go and trust that people will get the experience that they're meant to get and I have no control over whatsoever all I can do is my best and that meant not killing myself to do it and not um, because I couldn't risk overeating see previously if I tried to kill myself so to speak to do something I'd have to eat over it um, so that was you know and the fear of what people's expectations might be that would probably be one of the, the hardest pieces for me um, exercise got incorporated when um, I reached a healthy body weight and then it started to go up <laughs> and my food hadn't changed and um, someone from an outside source said Have you, do you exercise and I was like oh um, I mean I, I've been a dancer all my life but I, I didn't wasn't doing anything consistently so I started slowly I would walk 20 minutes every day and now it's a lot more but um, but yeah just little by little um, my relationship with my higher power, um, I, I grew up in a, um, in a particular faith, and so I always felt a connection to God um, in, in the traditional ways and the non-traditional ways. Um, the way it changed for me in program um, was that I began to look at God as um, something that I wanted involved in, in all the parts of my life. Um, and I noticed today that in the areas of my life that I'm struggling with are usually the areas that I have forgotten to include God in. Um, 
So the way that it is that I I've let go of the idea that God should look a certain way or should be experienced a certain way um, and really been open to how God might show up in my life um, and and not to judge it, you know, not to second guess it, um, but just to be open to the possibility of what that might be like. Um, when I get into fear or in the story of not enough, um, is I I breathe I, I use the tools I write I call somebody I get to a meeting um, the biggest thing and to me this is the biggest gift of abstinence is that pause because there was no pause button between thought and, and action or really just thought and stuff um, so abstinence gives me that moment to pause when agitated or doubtful um, and and then remember, like, maybe there's a, a vision of what's happening here that's outside of me. Um, yeah. Um, did I ever slip? Um, so I'm not sure how you define slip, but... Um, Break your abstinence. No, I've never broken my abstinence, um, thank God. Um, and did I ever resent? Sure. I've had moments where I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm a grown woman. Why should I have, you know. <laughs> um, actually, because um, it wasn't until um, a few years into abstinence that I actually started that practice of committing it to another human being the night before. I used to do it in a more general way. And so my ego was all like, I'm abstinent. I've been abstinent. This is, you know, and it just, and I just recognized, I went, oh, right, yeah. This is why it's going to keep you humble, sweetheart. So we just keep doing this. Um, I've learned that my thinking, my first thought about things, isn't the most reliable. So I have to go, hmm, that's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, all inside my own head. Um, yeah. Yeah, I kind of skipped over that, didn't I? Okay. So really quickly, the 10th step, how do I do that? I love the 10th step. I do one every night or most nights before I go to bed. Um, I have a, an inventory sheet, a document that I fill out. And um, so that's for the primary way. I look at, you know, where was I resentful? Um, and so I have to do, like, the, the four columns on it. You know, what happened, uh, what, what's going on? what was my part and what's the defect of character that's there and then you know asking God what how do you what do you want me to do with this um, I make a gratitude list um, I indicate like what tools I used um, you know is there things anything like it's actually from the the big book you know where it says like is there anything you should have shared with somebody else um, is there anything you don't want to say that kind of stuff um, so that's what I do thank you